Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace. And with me, as always, is my very, very talented friend, who's always down for a good fiesta, the mixtress DC Gina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm always down. You're right. Yeah. yeah especially yeah. if it's like 1130 at night, they start. You bring favorite. out the pinata. I had one of those at my kid's fun. birthday party this year. <laughs> it was the shape of a rainbow. I filled it with a ton of candies. There you go. And their parents were super pissed. I'm I like, bet. Oh, well. <laughs> Should have put oh, some, well. You should have put some whiskey and tequila in there, and then the parents might thank you later. Do you know that's a thing? That's a thing now. You can send people booze-filled piñatas for their birthday. Oh, that's awesome. And they're all little plastic um, minis, two-ounce bottles. you do not need to wait for my birthday for that, just so you know. I'm ready for the next recording, all right? With a muddler. Except oh, they hit go. it with a muddler. Oh, they will take you forever. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. All right. I got a pretty good forearm. Yeah, but the muddler's not enough. Well, anyway, I'll rip that bastard down. Anyway, so, you know pinata. I just had this vision of you standing in there <laughs> catching tequila. And being like, I love tequila. I love it. It's my favorite. Well, Casa Azul and middle, and middle Mini. There you go. Yeah. I mean, if it was Minis, I'd rip that thing down in Casa Azul. I'd be like, oh, delicious. There you go. You can get me some 1942 in there, too, maybe? I don't know. I've gotten past that now. I'm really into the Casa Azul. It's terrible. I do. I really just, like... It's, it's fucking terrible. It's bad for your wallet, but it's so delicious. Okay, sorry. All right. So, you know tequila. You know fiesta. <laughs> you know pinatas. <laughs> I know. I feel like an idiot. What are you going to say? Queso next? What am I no. only know food? Do you? I mean, seriously. Are you familiar with El Cupa Cabra? Yes. Yeah? It's that crazy mythical beast, right, that, like, kills people and uh, well, eats their children or something. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of myth around it. And so what that really actually translates is goat sucker. Yeah, literally. So, yeah. yes, you're it's right. a mythical beast, right? Well, there's 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 controversy whether it's actually myth or real. So, it was in 1992 is actually when this legend began, according to my little research, anyway. Wait, um, 1992. 1992. I thought it was older too, but it reports. It, well, that's when it comes to the surface, right? It comes out of Puerto Rico, and because there were so many animals being killed, including horses, cattle, and goats, mm. and then soon after that report, there were other sightings throughout most of Latin America, especially in Mexico. Mm. So you're right. People think that it may be a dog-like reptile that is long thought extinct. There's a lot of ideas what this might be, a lot of theory. Like right? an armadillo? <laughs> It'd be a really big armadillo. But, you know, it, it does, it says, that, you know, it's reported to have scaly gray skin. It has sharp spines that protrude along its back. And it stands about four feet tall. And here's the thing that I did I had not heard before, but it hops like a kangaroo in some stories. But it also is reported to have a forked tongue. This is where you wonder where this, these come in. It's a forked tongue, and it leaves a nasty sulfuric stench. So it's a little stinky, obviously. But, you know, some say that it might just simply be a coyote with mange, but that's a really big coyote. Um, but I just w watched some silly thing last night, of course, because we were doing this today. It's with William Shatner, some silly show. I think it's called Unexplained or something like that. And it was all about about this little goat sucker. And there was a guess they apparently somebody did some uh, research, sent the found a dead animal, it was on the side of the road. All of her chickens were being killed and like a vampire, it's sucking the blood out. And the thing was, they tested it at a university and came back that it was possibly part Mexican wolf and part coyote. And that's because it's an unrelated species procreating that maybe this is what this is. But 
it, you know, it was unexplained. It was William Shatner. I don't know how much I, <laughs> how much I put into that. But it was on the History Channel. But they also, here's the other thing, and you can't look. So, I have a lot of chickens, as I was wondering. And, and you should be worried because they, there have been sightings as far north as Maine. I believe it. So we could be going out of our houses in the D.C. In, area and, like, be, like, I live in, in Frederick County. <laughs> you do? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, we already have, like, a bear problem. It's fucking know. real. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'm kind of into it. After they found that sheet in uh, Scotland that had, like, you know, 30 pounds of, like, mangy, like, wool on the outside, and they sheared it down, and the animal only weighed, like, 30 pounds itself. But, like, when they weighed it, it was, like, 100 what? Like a helmet, yeah. You should look it up. It's a oh, real that thing. That sounds terrible. Well, it was awful because the sheep got away from its flock. So, I can see where like you could get like mud and stuff, and like it gets really, really hard and could be like a little helmet. Could be. Who knows? That's because you're making it an armadillo. You're still you making this an armadillo. I live in Frederick County, where they came up with the stupid <laughs> snallygaster. I mean, like seriously. All right. Yeah, like so, Roosevelt came to 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 Frederick to hunt this thing. So obviously there are a lot of animals, mythical or not, that thrive in the dark. Yeah. And there are still a lot of people in the U.S. who are also in the dark about Cinco de Mayo. Oh, come ah, on. See how I tied it together? And its origins. So to help us shed some light on this celebration, we are thrilled to welcome back today's designated drinker, Emily Key, the Director of Education for the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Latino. Welcome back, Emily. Thank you. Uh, it's well. It's a great pleasure to be back and be in person. <laughs> yes, for the first time. For the first time in yes. two years. It's yes. amazing. I know. I know. So if anyone um, doesn't know, Emily was on our one of our holiday episodes yeah. where we talked about um, Latin traditions. We talked about family traditions. Really, we talked we about cultural and family traditions yes. through food. Yes. Yes. yes, it was it was making us hungry, if I remember. Yeah, absolutely. And this one's just going to make us thirsty. And now we're in person. I know. <laughs> and now we're in person. And I get to and I get to taste Gina's drink in person you rather than make it rather than my own version of it, which I don't know if I can live to the standards. Well, you know, you, we none of us can. But the uh, good thing is, she gives us all her tips and tricks, and we can at least try. I make right? my, I make it a chichacabra for you. So, do you know any? Do you have any history on that? Is there like a like a hidden? I uh, don't. A I, hidden I, body I, left at the Smithsonian. I could be don't. Like <laughs> I am very interested to find out more, uh, especially the cross between the Mexican wolf and the coyote, because what we do have at the National Zoo is a Mexican gray wolf. We do uh -huh. have that. Well, so, if you go to the National Zoo, you can go see what a Mexican wolf looks like. So maybe we get that coyote and the wolf, get him a cocktail, and see what happens. A coyote and the wolf sounds like the greatest bar. <laughs> like I went to Coyote and the Wolf and got super fucked up on tequila. <laughs> All right, I want to talk about Cinco de Mayo because it's one holiday that legitimately I spend my entire year on the May 5th date making sure that we have the whole day dedicated to tequila and um, different sorts of um, dishes and stuff on our menu. So tell me, am I doing it wrong? Well, Cinco de Mayo, it's one of those things that we talk a lot about at the National Museum of the American Latino, um, which, you know, is really about demystifying it because so many people think that Cinco de Mayo is Mexican Independence Day. Yeah. Funny story, it is not. Mexican Independence Day is September 16th. So if you ever wonder why we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month from September 15th to October 15th, the reason is 
There are many Latin American and Central American countries whose Independence Day starts in that September, October window. Oh, really? Including Mexico huh. uh, on September 16th. So Cinco de Mayo, not Mexican Independence Day. Yep. I'm ready. So here we go. Not to keep you at the seat at the edge of your seat here. <laughs> I'm like re- redo my entire May Fifth. You might want to, yes, because you're going to be very interested to know that Cinco de Mayo is actually the recognition of the Battle of Puebla, which is, if you didn't know, um, a state and a city um, in the outskirts of um, Mexico. It's uh, about a couple hours outside of Mexico City. Um, And the Battle of Puebla is not related to independence at all. The Battle of Puebla is related to the French incursion into Mexico. So did you know the French intervened in Mexico twice? The first time was the Pastry War, which this is going to sound Really crazy. Um, (laughs) Or delicious. uh, Both. Crazy and delicious. So a little bit of history to sort of set the the ground stage here. So Mexican independence against the Spanish occurs in 1821. Um, The Spanish leave the country. Uh, Mexico is established as an independent country. Mexico then is working to get recognized by many of the European countries um, and other countries in the Americas at that point as an independent sovereign nation. One of the nations they want to go to is France. Um, It takes about nine years of back and forth negotiation, all that diplomatic mumbo jumbo kind of thing. And then they end up in 1830 being officially recognized by the country of France. In doing so, then French colonists come to uh, Mexico and they settle. Um, They actually start in the port of Veracruz, uh, which is a port city uh, on the Gulf of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And um, they bring with them, obviously, their own culinary traditions with French chefs, uh, cooks, and pastry chefs. Uh, In the late 1830s, uh, 1838, Uh, you have a small little problem. Um, (laughs) Some French pastry chefs, uh, some looters and rioters went into their uh, establishments and destroyed them. Um, And so at that point, the French government uh, demanded reparations from the Mexican government. Uh, The Mexican government wasn't doing so well in the financial sector. Let's uh, say that they were still a very new Uh, country at that point. Budding, Um, if you will. They were budding. um, (laughs) They were still developing. And so the French came into Mexico through the Puerto Veracruz and uh, fought this one-year war called the Pastry War. Um, The conclusion of that was that Mexico would indeed pay reparations to to France. Flash forward a few years, um, and Benito Juarez, uh, president of Mexico in the 1860s, he has some real financial troubles with the country, and he is unable to make and pay the foreign debts, uh, including the reparations to France. And so they stop paying. Well, what happens when the creditors come knocking at your door? Um, Isn't that just kind of like a heavy kind of like, you know, the mafia, like you got to pay your 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 dues, like keep... <laughs> So well, that, and, I, and I mean, the reality was they were still, even in the 1860s, they're still a budding country. Yeah. So France decides that because Mexico is not able to pay its foreign debts, it's going to use that as an excuse to go in 
and invade and establish a stronghold in the Americas, which is what they really wanted to do. They weren't necessarily desperate for the reparations. They really wanted to establish a stronghold in the Americas. And so in 1861, the French Empire comes into Mexico, um, and you have the second Franco-Mexican War. Um, and this time, it's a much lengthier war. And one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why the French were really interested at that point to come in and um, establish the stronghold is because what was happening in the United States in the 1860s? Uh, gold rush? Civil war. Civil war and gold rush. Uh, oh. Yes. Okay. And so the, what happens is the U.S. is too busy yeah. um, fighting its own civil war to really know what's going on in its, in its neighbor. In its neighbor. Oh, and yeah. so the French, very astute, take advantage of the fact that the American government is a little too busy right now fighting amongst themselves. And so it takes advantage, comes into Mexico in 1861, and really takes over the country and establishes literally an emperor. In 1864, uh, this Austrian Duke, uh, Maximilian, and his wife, Carlota. Oh, come into the picture. And um, they are, you know, established as the emperor and empress of Mexico. They have a castle, um, which you can now go visit the in Chapultepec, um, in Mexico City. Um, and with I them- I didn't know that's where that was. Huh. They bring French tradition, French cuisine, French culture, and French food. And you really see that French influence in Mexico really take a stronghold. Now, where does the Battle of the Puebla come in in all of this? And Cinco I'm de Mayo? still wondering. Wait, I need to back up for one second. So is that the reason why Mexico City looks so much like French cities in, in general with so the big is, circle exactly. and, so there's and the arch? The, and, okay. the rotundas. Yep, and, yep, you know, there's yep. a lot of Spanish influence, but there's also a lot of French influence in, yeah. in Mexican culture and cuisine and architecture and design. And so we'll talk a little bit about how that really comes to play. But... We were here to talk about Cinco de Mayo. So what does this have anything to do with Cinco de Mayo? I don't know. I don't know, but what I haven't said it? a word because I'm like, just keep talking. I just love it. So, like, she's taking us to school. I know. So, Escuela. I, I'm taking you the, the long way, the, the scenic journey here. So Cinco de Mayo comes into play because it's a battle in this second Franco-Mexican war. Um, it is one battle. Um, it is the Battle of Puebla on May 5th. 1862. So it's early on in the war. And the reason why it's so significant is because the Mexican army, all of 600 men. Wow. Wow. Led by General Zaragoza, a Mexican uh, general, served under Benito Juarez, um, takes his 600 men and fights against the French army of six thousand men. Wow. And is able to outwit them, outsmart them, and through tactical maneuvers, wins the day. Now, they don't win the war yet. They win the battle. <laughs> but the big reason why it's so important in this, in this story of uh, French incursion is that it's a show of force by you know, and in, the indigenous people of Mexico against these European uh, settlers and invaders, and so this is why it's such an important date. Um, interestingly enough, another MythBuster here: 
Cinco de Mayo, not really celebrated in Mexico. Nope. Cinco de Mayo is really mostly celebrated in Puebla because it is the Battle of Puebla Mm -hmm. that happened on May 5th, but it is known in Mexico as Battle of Puebla, not Cinco de Mayo. (laughs) Um, And it is really only celebrated in Puebla. It is not really celebrated in in the rest of the country. Uh, People go to work. People go to school. uh, There's no, you know, specials on margaritas and nachos. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's very much about, you know, this one battle in this long war and really about recognizing how the Mexican people join together to, you know, defend their country and defend their territory. I'm going to cancel my plans. So that's the myth. So that's the myth. Um, And then the history behind it and the real story behind Cinco de Mayo and how that all comes to play. The French influence in Puebla makes so much sense to me after we talked, Emily, because, you know, Dave, my, Gina knows my husband, is her, his grandfather's from Puebla. And they have the high cheekbones, the thin nose, where my father is definitely from, like, the Jalisco area outside of Guadalajara. I got the flatter nose. But, yeah, you can see it in Dave. You can see it in my husband. You can see the European influence more so, and especially in his grandfather. His grandfather had really high, like, structured. I mean, um, it's, it's it's a fascinating story in part because so many people... When they think of Mexico, they automatically think European connection is Spain. Yeah. But there is this larger, you know, uh, connection to France, um, which is obviously not the same as, uh, you know, the Spanish connection, but it is very much present and you still see it. And I think the only reason why, in part, it's so much a part of the culture and the tradition is actually uh, Porfirio Diaz, who comes in to power and ends up being a dictator for about 30 years after this war. Oh. Um, this war ends in 1866, and it ends because the American Civil War ended. And so the Americans decided to look to its neighbor and see what was happening and said, oh, wait, this is not good. This can't be good for us either. So they invoke the Monroe Doctrine, which allows the U.S. to go in and help um, and intervene in Latin American affairs in order to protect them from invaders. And they bolster the Mexican troops and help win the war and expel the French out. But the reason why the French culture is still so seen in Mexico is because the president, um, who becomes the dictator, dictator, Porfirio Diaz, he is a Francophile. And he loves French culture, he loves French cuisine, and he really promotes that French connection. So interestingly enough, while the Battle of Puebla is a very important date to show um, the idea of Mexican people coming together to defend and to really be patriotic, you know, the, the, the reality is that while the physical presence of the French it were, it was expelled, you have then the reality of people coming together um, to share their culture and their cuisine. Yeah, right? that long-lasting effect. It's a long-lasting yeah. effect that yeah. you still see today. Well, it would make sense, too, because I would imagine French relocated. You've got all mixed families that all of those things just start. I mean, it's it's the history of man, right? Like one, one culture is... is um, invaded and or another culture is introduced and it's just this constant fusion of things that we see as this is Mexican culture but to your point you start peeling back these layers looking through the years you really see it's 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 not singular by any means no and and it's very multi-dimensional right yeah. and and when you start to actually you know peel the onion 
back, um, you start to realize that the, the, the intersections between communities and cultures is very much uh, a reality of history, right? Um, we don't live in a vacuum today, but they didn't live in a vacuum then either, right? I think we like to think of history as very uh, sterile, very much, you know, it's a moment in time, but they lived and experienced things the very same way we do, yeah. which is very multidimensional, multicultural, different lenses, different perspectives, different people. Um, and I think you have to keep that in mind that we read history from the perspective of the person who won, right? Exactly. The community who won. Exactly. Um, but there's a whole lot of stories that aren't told that really make that history uh, come together and, and be the authentic story. Yeah, that rich, like you said, multi level multi-intersectional. Um, I want to know where I was during like history lessons. Like, was I fucking like brain dead those like when I was in seventh grade? Because I remember reading about all this as you're talking about it. Like when we were like learning history, U.S. history. <laughs> I live in a house that was built in 1767. Oh, wow. So you'd think that, hey, you were really part of that whole trail for like the Civil War that I would know that. Yeah. I'm like the gold rush. So I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, this is what's wrong with in general, Americans in general. It's like, we don't know any history of anything. And we're like, some marketing idiot. Now hey, that, hey. Sorry. Shows <laughs> up and says, and says to me, dummy, who's like, I don't know, the gold rush, right? And goes, listen, you're going to tell everybody that Cinco de Mayo is amazing and you're selling tequila and beer. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And... <laughs> Literally, I'm like the person. But that's why museums are great, right? Because you can continue learning even beyond your time in school. Exactly. And we can continue to learn and improve what we know or what we don't know. Um, and I mean, there are many things. Doing research for this podcast is when I learned about the pastry war. I did not know about the pastry war beforehand. And so I think it was really interesting to learn that there was a pre to what I really know, which is this the second uh, French um, Mexican War intervention. So I think what she's saying, Gina, even for you and I, there's still hope. Yes. <laughs> there's oh hope for God. all of us. So I think it's time for you to share your knowledge. Okay. Let's, let's go do, do your yes, uh, yes, let's Gina's do some drink. tech talk. Let's do some tech talk. And, okay, okay, let's do it. So today we're going to talk about um, our little friend, the uh, shaker tin, right? You're like, oh, what's a shaker tin? I have one at home. It has a little top on it. I bought it in the store. Mine is a glass top. Well, this is your shaker tin, which is a 20-ounce shaker, and then you have a 16-ounce shaker that goes on the top. Now, together, this makes the Boston shaker. Now, if you have a Boston shaker at home that has a glass pint on top, it's just like, you know, something that was found in the 50s, 60s, and is a really nice piece of history. If you're going to buy something new this day, I would definitely go out and buy yourself a 20 ounce tin and a 16 ounce tin and get them together, or 28 ounce tin, excuse me, because we're gonna talk about shaking a cocktail. You always wanna take the top of the cocktail and fill it with ice three quarters of the way full, and that is the proper amount of ice for shaking a cocktail. So when you take that, you'll put it in and you'll be able to shake your drink. And here's my last pro tip for today and is a 90 degree angle and you're gonna shake your drink. It should almost sound like a little bit of a bell going off. And that's how you know your cocktail is gonna be proper. So Gina, that's a whole lot of shaking. Where are they gonna get all that, uh, all that how-to? Ready, you're gonna go to designateddrinker.show for all the tips, tricks, and how-tos, how to find Emily, where you're gonna go and learn more history because clearly we all need it. There we go. 
This brings us to the end of part one with Emily Key. Mm. But you know what? It's okay, because we're going to come back. we got a part two. One round is never enough. Um, <laughs> so make sure you top off your cocktail and come back so you can check out part two of this episode as we continue our boozy banter and Gina shares her delicious recipe that uh, is Emily-inspired. Oh, it is. It, it is. is. It is. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.